Hey team, welcome back to the show. Today I am joined once again by Brandon DeCruz. Today we are going to be chatting about GLP-1 drugs. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about semaglutide, which is something that I am sure, unless you're living under a rock, you've heard of. But <laughs> before we get into that, Brandon, fill us in. Uh, how's the week been going? Anything new with you? Yeah, so uh, the week's been going well, my man. Uh, it's been a busy week to say the least. Um, as I had mentioned last week, I had just finished my mini cut that I was running when we recorded the last podcast together. So over the last week, I ran what I call a deficit deload, which I've, I've taken you through, but just so the audience knows, this is essentially where I take a deload from training, uh, where I'll reduce both my training volume and my training intensity, while I'll also simultaneously uh, increase my calorie intake. And like essentially, the goal is to bridge the energy gap and the deficit that I had created during the diet itself, and then also to dissipate fatigue, both from training and also the diet-induced fatigue. So I finished that off this past Sunday. And then on Monday, I started a new training mesocycle where I'm going to be, we had actually discussed this a little bit and, um, you know, kind of like my plans going forward. And I had a discussion with one of my mentors, like where I should go from here. And really what I came down to is I'm going to be running a modified push-pull leg split where I'm going to be training all my body parts twice per week, except for my delts, which I'm going to be training four times per week. So I'll have delt work on both both push days and pull days. So I have two push days, two pull days. So I'll utilize or I'll integrate some uh, delt work on both of those so that um, I have an increased frequency on delt work. And it's because I'm trying to, I'm particularly interested in bringing uh, up my delts. But um, you know, what's interesting is, uh, you know, I get on a bunch of podcasts. I'm on with you almost every week. I have a podcast of my own. And, um, you know, I had discussed the fact that I was doing a deload. And I did so also in posts that I'd made. I made a physique update post in terms of a mini uh, mini cut, like ending phase. And um, what's interesting is I've been talking about deloads for years. Like we've been talking about them on podcasts. I've done podcasts about them. And it was, uh, it's interesting because it was the first time that I've gotten a ton of questions regarding whether I actually think deloads are effective. And this basically came out as a result of the recent study that came out. Um, I'm not sure if you, you looked at it, yeah, but did. did you look into, yeah. So did you look, you looked into the, uh, the new study out of Brad Schoenfeld's lab, right? Uh-huh. It was only like eight weeks, right? Yeah. So essentially, uh, just so the audience knows, there's a new study that was by Coleman et al. So this is a student out of Brad Schoenfeld's lab. And essentially what they did was uh, they took male and females with about three and a half years of training experience, and they divided them into two groups over a nine-week training study. And both groups, pretty much what they were really looking at was just lower body training, where they trained lower body twice per week. And they either were in like a normal training group, which trained the entire nine-week study, or they were in a deload group where they had subjects trained for four weeks, take a deload, but this was a little bit different. They had a full one-week break in terms of the deload. So it's not like the traditional deload that we would use, but they said that they wanted to standardize things a little bit more. And um, so they had them go four weeks, full week off, and then four other weeks. And when we really look at like the training design, the training study, you know, it was all machine, you know, uh, movements. It was, you know, these are guys that had training experience, but they weren't super advanced. And at the end of that nine week period, they looked at both groups and they looked at the hypertrophy and strength outcomes between groups. And what's interesting is a lot of people have like chucked this up, like deloads don't work or they're ineffective or they shouldn't right. be utilized. But the thing is, I feel like a lot of people didn't actually look. So this is pre-pubbed. Uh, today is uh, July 6th. So this has yet to be released in terms of an actual publication. It is not published at this point, at least. And so maybe there's some things that are subject to change. But when you actually look at the findings, you go through the entire study, you see that both the traditional and the D-Rule group both saw similar increases in muscle growth in both the quads and the cats, which were the only, you know, muscular, uh, only muscle groups that they measured. And so 
the one week deload, which should have been termed probably like more so like a, a training break because it was a cessation of training completely, it didn't significantly differ the outcome in muscle growth. And they also, when they looked at other measurements of muscle, they saw similar increases in muscle endurance and similar increases in muscle power in both groups. The one aspect, and there is a caveat to this, is they looked at a strength and they did see a difference in isometric strength, which is, you know, something we wouldn't actually utilize in the gym itself. And then also one rep max strength, um, which they saw that both groups increased strength, but the normal training group that trained the entire duration did see a significantly greater increase in strength. But what's interesting is like, you'll see people's like hot takes on this on social media. They'll make infographics and, and things of that sort. And a lot of people are saying that this study proves that deloads aren't beneficial, but that's not what this study showed at all. What it did find was that taking a deload won't negatively affect the gains in hypertrophy over, you know, a short training cycle. And people, you know, within the study essentially got the same gains from training from eight weeks as they did training for nine weeks. So if we really look at that, they got the same gains training 11% less or or essentially doing 11% less total work. And the only thing that it did find that was significantly different was that it affected one repetition max strength. And, you know, when I, I think about this and it's funny cause I got feedback on this and I'm not a strength athlete, you know what I mean? Most of the people that we train, it's body composition related. When it really comes down to it, if your main goal is body composition and muscle growth, one max rep strength isn't something I think you really need to be all that concerned about. And the study didn't even use like a traditional type of deload many of us would use in practice. And So like, you know, a lot of people, it's just a funny thing about like scientific literacy. A lot of people like they just look at the abstract, they just look at these infographics and they take it for gospel and they don't actually look into studies themselves and then they run with things and then they question what other people are doing, not realizing there's so much context to be taken into consideration. And I think another thing that a lot of people have overlooked is if you actually go into like the, um, the actual reports that the study like, provides is they they ask for like subjective biofeedback essentially from the the people in the study themselves, and they they asked them about the deload, but they said that they didn't feel like a benefit in terms of feeling refreshed after taking a full week off after only four weeks of training. So this kind of aligns with what you know we've often spoken about on the show. You know, many times we've spoken about the fact that I'm not a fan of of uh you know pre-programmed deloads. Like I'm all about reactive deloads where right. I'll essentially deload. And there's been times even with yourself that I've really stretched out the mesocycle because your biofeedback didn't indicate and nor did your training performance. You didn't have any drop-offs in training performance. There was right. essentially no indication that you needed a deload. And so really when it comes down to deloads and any training you know, philosophy or training methodology, we have to realize that research is just a compass. It points us in a direction, but it's never going to teach us how to train. And we also have to realize that there's so much context to be taken into consideration for clients that we work with in the real world, because I'm only going to deal with a client if, you know, their feedback, their fatigue indices, um, you know, their stress levels or factors within their lifestyle indicate that it's needed to do so. And this is why I've never been a proactive, like, are a fan of proactive pre-programmed deloads like the four to one paradigm that they ran. However, in the context of a study, they can't just determine, hey, listen, whenever someone's feeling fatigued, we're going to deload them then and then see the benefits. Like it needs to be standardized. That's a scientific method. So it's it was just ironic that I got questions where I've literally been speaking about deloads for four or five years, never had gotten questions if I thought they were effective. A lot of times people would just ask me the benefits of them. But now we have one study that comes out and it's literally the only study done on deloads. And it, it's causing people to like run with with what they see on social media. It's just, uh, it, it's really an indication of like, sometimes you really need to get your information from outlets other than social media. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw the same thing. I had a client send me actually that study. Um, and I don't remember who made an infographic on it, but it was basically like, deloads aren't effective was the title. And to me, it was just the fact that it was only nine weeks long in itself is like, there are 
incredibly few clients that I'm going to be deloading more than like every nine weeks. Like, I think we're all very much in an agreement, at least I know on the show, we're very much in agreement that deloading every four weeks just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't need it for most people. But as you said, as well, it's something that's reactive, right? I have clients who train three days a week and we run that shit back to back for years and I've never had to deload them. And a lot of times it's like life deloads for us, right? Maybe they're traveling this 100%. week and we're taking some time off, but yeah, it's interesting how much people have run with that because uh, i've seen a lot of a lot of what i was seeing was just like yeah deals are stupid you don't need a deload and it's I, I i don't know it's it's interesting how many hot takes were around that actually no it's it's always interesting because i think that a lot of the research that has come out there's been a lot of pre-pubs meaning that they they release the study abstract before the study actually gets published and goes through peer review and that's amazing we spoke about actually on a podcast we did a roundtable last month between yourself, myself, and Jeff um, Hain, where we spoke about the training to failure, new meta-analysis and meta, or meta-regression rather. And a lot of people had a hot take about that. Like, see, I told you, you needed to train every single set to failure. And it's like, did you read the study? Did you go through the supplementary material? That's not what it says. It says that there's a dose-response relationship between training closer to failure, getting to failure, and hypertrophy. But it didn't say at any end of the spectrum that you cannot make gains in hypertrophy or muscle growth from a low, like say being two to three reps in reserve, it just says that the dose relationship and it was estimated reps in reserve. So even the study authors, like the guys from Data Different Strength that ran this entire study said that there could be certain things that they're not being able to see because it was an estimation. So their like advice was to take this with a grain of salt, but also know that it should make logical sense. Like we all know if you train harder, you're going to get better growth. However, we also have to factor in the fatigue side of the equation. So this is only showing you the stimulus, like hypertrophic stimulus that can come from training closer to failure. Yes. Most of the time we should stay safe between zero and two reps away from failure. That is just hard, conducive, progressive training. However, it didn't never said in any way, shape or form that every single set of every single exercise of every single day that you train for the rest of your life needs to be taken to failure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. It's, it's very interesting. And I think that's the thing with all research. And that's the problem also, as you said, with getting your information from social media. I think so many coaches now think the thing that they need to best help. And I think like the research is important, but at the same time, I think so many coaches think the thing they need to best help their client is to like be super deep in the research. And then what happens is we're just like collecting information from um, these other like researchers and people sensationalizing it and it's gets to the point where it just like i don't know how applicable or helpful it can be sometimes if you're not very good at kind of filtering through those things so interesting for sure um anything else going on with you before we get into the topic oh everything's good on my end my man cool all right dude um this is going to be a great one to get into so let's just go ahead and get into it so again uh, we're going to be talking about GLP-1 drugs. Specifically, we're going to be talking about semaglutide. Um, so within this, really, this is something that has just over the last, I would say, six, eight months, again, for those who don't know, essentially looked at as a weight loss drug, um, a tool to really make fat loss, weight loss quite a bit easier for most people. And again, I know it's just huge, most everywhere. I know I've had tons of clients, tons of potential clients asking me about it. And I know you've done, you've um, had the same. So really wanted to dig into this topic. Um, so first, because this does really play on um, our hunger signaling, our satiety, first to start us off, can you go over what factors and hormones are involved in hunger, appetite, and regulation of satiety before we actually get into semaglutide and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do think that it's really important to start at this place. Uh, before we go into even the topic of weight loss drugs and specifically 
GLP-1 receptor agonists um, because of the fact that, you know, hunger, appetite, and satiety, which is really what these drugs are modulating or modifying, um, they're heavily impacted by so many factors beyond just the amount of calories that we take in on a daily basis. As many think that our ability to control our appetite is only controlled solely by our energy intake, but there are so many various factors and hormones that influence our ability to regulate our appetite naturally, including our food intake, but also, in addition to that, we have to think about the fact that we have gastric stretch receptors in the gut, which is why when we eat something like a high volume, high fiber, low calorie density, you know, foods in our meals, like if we add, say, a big ass salad or a bowl of strawberries, we can feel fuller off of far fewer calories than we would if we were to include low volume yet high energy density items like oils or butter or something processed like potato chips. And our appetite and satiety levels are also influenced by our food selection and the composition of those foods, including their macronutrient content. So for example, we know that protein is the most satiating macronutrient. So if you were to eat, you know, do a comparison and eat 30 grams of say a chicken breast compared to, you know, 30 grams of fat source like butter, you're going to feel far more satiated with that chicken breast. You know, hunger, appetite, and satiety are also impacted by our food environment and the cues within the environment, such as the visual inputs of foods that we see around us, the aromas and smells we're exposed to, which is why we can often get like a food craving from, you know, just really just seeing an advertisement, whether it be on TV or on social media or on those food porn pages that I don't know why people, when they're dieting, they end up, you know, gravitating to, or, you know, big thing is like, say you're out one day and you walk by like a, a bakery and you smell fresh baked items like cookies or brownies or donuts or pastries. Like, you know, you might've not been thinking about those items for months or weeks or whatever it may be. Yet now you have a craving for those very specific items. You know, these, these factors are also impacted by food reward and our memories of a past experience with a particular food, which is why if you think about any food that you've gotten a craving for during a diet, it's always something first that's delicious and tasty, but it's also something that you've had before. And it's, you know, if you really think about it, and I often had this discussion with clients because we have to realize that that there's a difference between homeostatic eating, which is the need for eating that's driven by actual hunger, that's driven by our actual need for calories. And this is obviously really present during a deficit, but there's also hedonic eating or hedonic hunger, which really comes from our environment and, and includes things like our cravings. And if you really think about it, like and I had this discussion with clients all the time, like, have you ever had a craving for something that you know is delicious or a lot of people have said is delicious, but you've never had in the past? Like I, I certainly have it. Like there's so many things that we see maybe on a social media page that looks, you know, appetizing, but we've never had any of the constituent items within it. Or it's from a different culture and you hear like, you know, this French pastry is amazing, but you would never have like a specific craving for that item because you've never had it. And, you know, appetite and satiety are also impacted by the specific nutrients we take in and the properties of the foods that we eat, such as the protein, carb, fat, sugar, and salt content. And then we get into the area of hormones. And this is really where we need to get more specific about things because this is where these drugs are going to be working. So, you know, we have various hormones that impact our appetite, our satiety, and our hunger levels. And these include things like leptin, ghrelin, um, peptide YY, CCK, and GLP-1. And so when it comes to leptin, leptin is a hormone which is secreted by our adipose tissue, aka your fat tissue, and serves as you know your body's way of internally measuring both the amount of body fat you have and your energy status. So it has short-term and long-term implications. And when body fat is in, whether it be in the normal or even the high range, leptin levels are high and essentially indicate to your body that you have enough you know, stored energy or you have enough body fat and thus you have more than enough calories and energy available. However, when you start to diet, you know, and your body fat drops, you know, leptin levels start to decline. And this is because we have less fat tissue. We're literally losing, you know, part, you know, 
portions of fat, which make it so that we're unable to produce as much leptin. And the amount of leptin that you have is controlled by the amount of fat you have and the size of those fat cells, as well as the amount of calories that you take in, especially in terms of your carbon intake. And so leptin is a major regulator in both appetite and satiety, as well as energy expenditure. So when leptin levels are high, the body gets a signal that it's well-fed and doesn't need to eat anymore and allows you to use those calories that you have to expend more energy, which is why, you know, many people find that their need increases when they go from a fat loss phase to a reverse diet or even to a building phase. Like they have more energy in the system and now they can utilize it. Whereas just a few weeks previously, when they're in a deficit, they were like dragging to get themselves off the couch. But when we've dropped a significant amount of body fat and body weight, leptin levels start to drop, which is one of the main effects that we see from metabolic adaptation, which we've covered in detail in a podcast that we did together. But essentially, you know, it's it's also one of the reasons why we feel less satiated and we see a reduction in our energy expenditure levels, especially from a drop in our meat levels, which is pretty much a result of our body trying to conserve energy. Like it's just literally trying to lower our calorie output so that we have more energy available for physiological and necessary processes. Then we have ghrelin, which is our main hunger hormone, which along with leptin has a huge impact on our appetite regulation and our hunger levels. So when leptin levels decrease and ghrelin levels increase as the case, you know, as in the case when we're dieting, both will have impacts on our appetite. So Ghrelin gets high, you know, when ghrelin gets high, it makes us hungry and it drives you to want to eat. And ghrelin changes on like this short time scale. So when you've been hours without a meal, ghrelin levels will rise until you eat. But right after that meal, we see that ghrelin levels start to decline. And ghrelin responds to both energy availability, both in the short and long term. And it's entrained by our usual eating schedules. So we experience a rise in ghrelin levels daily prior to the usual times we eat and during periods of fasting. And then we have other like what are called you know, gut hormones. And essentially these are involved in satiety like CCK, peptide YY, and GLP-1. So these are all peptides. And so CCK is released by the gut and suppresses feeding. And PYY is another gut produced hormone, which generally increases about 15 minutes after eating, which is why you'll feel fuller if you eat a meal slower, as it generally takes like 15 to 20 minutes for nutrients to reach the gut and send that signal to the brain that we've eaten enough and can stop eating, which is also why we see that like when you eat really quickly, you could have the same amount of calories in a meal. And there's actually research studies that do this where they look at the the difference in energy intake when you eat a meal in six minutes as compared to a meal in 24 minutes. So you really elongate that eating schedule, the, the amount of chews that you take per bite and, and just the, the mindfulness in which you eat a meal. And we see that in subsequent meals, first of all, they feel fuller within that meal itself. And then also there's been some research studies that have shown in the next meal due to eating slower, you know, subjects or, or participants eat 25% less calories in that next meal because they've been satiated. And then you know, to, to round this all out, we have glucagon like peptide one, which is the satiety hormone we're going to focus on today. So GLP one is a gut derived peptide hormone that belongs to a family of hormones called incretins, which is a class of hormones that increases insulin. So anytime you hear incretin, there's a couple incretin hormones, but specifically the one of most popularity is GLP one. And all this means like the, the class of incretins means that it intestinally, it's an intestinal production of insulin. And so GLP-1 is naturally released in response to eating and is primarily produced by our intestines, but it's also released from both our pancreas and our brain. And this naturally uh, produced hormone plays several roles in our body, which can influence our appetite, such as increasing insulin re release from the pancreas, hence why it's referred to as an incretin hormone, and thus allows us to utilize the fuel sources we eat, especially our carbohydrate intake. It also slows down the rate of gastric emptying, which allows for nutrients to be absorbed slower and for us to feel fuller and to have a lower postprandial or post-meal spike in blood sugar. And then it also interacts with the hypothalamus in the brain to increase feelings of satiety and fullness and to suppress our appetite. So 
if you guys just think about it, this is what natural GLP-1 does. So you can imagine that when we go into the subjects of GLP-1 drugs, if this is causing an, you know, a super physiological increase in these GLP-1 levels, they're going to have downstream cascades on insulin sensitivity and then also on appetite regulation, which is thus going to lead to weight loss, which is why it's become such a popular weight loss drug as of recently. Absolutely. Super interesting. And I think just understanding that high level overview of all those different hormones is so beneficial to, again, get into what we have going on here. So talk us through then, what do GLP-1 drugs do and who are they designed for? All right. So GLP-1 drugs, and we're going to specifically uh, focus on semaglutide for this case, just because you know, this, you know, semaglutide is essentially the most popular and widely used GLP-1 receptor agonist. And so essentially what GLP-1 drugs are, are they're a class of synthetic peptides that mimic the action of our naturally produced GLP-1 hormones. Think about all of just what we just covered that GLP-1 does. This is essentially what these drugs do, um, you know, almost at a unnatural production type of capability. And the reason that they're called GLP-1 receptor agonists or analogs, so you'll hear um, both being both terms, whether it be GLP-1 RAs, meaning receptor agonists, or GLP-1 uh, analysts or analogs, is because these medications work by binding to and activating GLP-1 receptors throughout the body. And now when it comes to what these drugs do and who they're for, GLP-1 drugs help to increase insulin sensitivity, which is why they were initially designed for the treatment of diabetes. As is, you know, when we have diabetics, you know, essentially they're in this state of insulin resistance where the beta cells of the pancreas do not function as well as they should. So they need to continuously produce more insulin to be able to um, dispose of nutrients, especially glucose. So by using these drugs, we get an increase in GLP-1 levels, which can then help with diabetes and insulin uh, resistance as GLP-1 stimulates insulin production from the pancreas, which can help us dispose of glucose and then also lower our blood sugar levels. And another little added benefit of this is a lot of people don't realize that insulin actually acts as a satiety hormone. So it's one way that these drugs work to decrease appetite. And then GLP-1 receptor agonists also delay gastric emptying, which slows down the transit time of nutrients in the gut, which leads to both slower glucose absorption, which is going to increase our insulin sensitivity, but it also, because of that slowing, like just what I was saying about slowing down the eating rate at which you eat a meal, that's going to slow down, you know, the absorption of nutrients in and of itself. However, when a drug is in your system and it delays that gastric emptying, it's also going to lead to increased satiety and fullness. And then there's also GLP-1 receptors in the hypothalamus of the brain. And so when GLP-1 is released, it acts on the brain and helps with appetite regulation, which is another reason why these drugs cause a decrease in hunger and appetite. So these drugs were designed for type 2 diabetics originally. So if you actually look at like the American Diabetes Association, I'm very familiar with this because my father was a diabetic and actually he, you know, he passed before this became, uh, you know, very popular. However, there was a drug that was just used for type 2 diabetes called Trulicity, which was a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And it was something that his doctor was looking to put him on before, you know, he passed away. So I got, you know, um, I guess I got introduced into the literature on this around 2014, 2015, just on what GLP-1 receptor agonist for type 2 diabetes was for. And so when you look at like the American Diabetes Association, they have said that like the best candidates for, or what this drug was essentially designed for in terms of semaglutide is for someone with type 2 diabetes who has tried other interventions to treat their diabetes, such as things like lifestyle modification, diet, exercise, and then other medications such as like glucophage, or it's commonly referred to as metformin, which is the the number one most prescribed type 2 diabetic medications. And it's for those that have tried all these other interventions, however, have been unable to get control of their blood sugar levels and their insulin resistance. And within the last couple of years, they've also been used as a treatment for those with obesity who are suffering from health complications as a result 
um, and haven't been able to get their weight down to a healthier level through diet and exercise. And when I've looked into this uh, previously, I think technically doctors are only supposed to uh, you know, prescribe GLP-1 drugs for a person with a BMI over 30, which would be in the obesity category, or if someone has a BMI over 27, so they're, over, they're categorized as overweight, but they have another serious health implication or condition such as type 2 diabetes, or if they have like obstructive sleep apnea. And I should probably also mention just for the sake of the podcast that I'm, you know, when it comes to semaglutide, this is the generic name. So this is what you're going to hear a lot of people speak about, but it's also referred to by other different brand names. So listeners out there may have heard it referred to as Ozempic and Wagovi, which are both injectable GLP-1 drugs. And the difference is what they're used for. So for instance, when you hear Ozempic, it's a treatment for type 2 diabetes, whereas Wagovi is the anti-obesity medication. So whenever you hear these terms, they're all interchangeable. So semaglutide is the same as Ozempic, is the same as Wagovi. So anytime you hear these, same category of drugs works on the same mechanism of action, just what their actual prescriptions are utilized for is just a different, um, I guess, condition essentially. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So I think some of those will be pretty obvious, but what are the potential benefits that we're looking at of semaglutide? Yeah. So we went over a lot of the actions and those Mm -hmm. are the benefits. However, you know, the main benefits of semaglutide, besides the fact that it increases insulin sensitivity, it lowers blood sugar levels and also helps weight loss is really its appetite suppressing effects, which is why it's getting so much, you know, limelight, especially in the media and by, you know, people within diet culture or, you know, celebrities or athletes and things of that sort. Yeah. 100%. And so we've seen research that it's caused significant weight loss in those suffering with obesity. So one of the most well-known studies on semaglutide was a step one trial. And in this study, they took adults with either overweight or obesity and randomly assigned them to either a placebo group or a semaglutide injection group, plus a lifestyle intervention to aid in weight loss. And over the course of 68 weeks, which came out to a little over 17 months, the average change in body weight from baseline or the start of the study to the end of the study. So over that 17 um, month period was 14.9% in the semaglutide group as compared to around 3% in the placebo group who didn't receive the drug. Then after that, there also was a follow-up to the step one trial that was called the step five trial. So essentially when you hear these steps, they're all within the same category and and the same, I think it's Norv Noder is the one that is actually doing these trials, but they're essentially trying to see, you know, what are the effects of these drugs on different populations essentially. So it was actually this past year and published and it looked at the effect of two years of high doses of semaglutide on adults with obesity. And they found that the average body weight losses were around 14.8% over the two-year trial. And then there's also been a 2021 systematic review finding that GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs or treatments cause between an 11 and 13 pound weight loss over the course of periods ranging between 12 to 68 weeks. So we see you know, significant levels of weight loss in adults with obesity when using semaglutide over long periods of time with the best results essentially coming from between 17 to 24 months. So it's really important to put that caveat there because a lot of people think that this is like a short-term, like quick solution to weight loss. But a lot of what we have in the literature, first of all, is done on people that have overweight or obesity. So they have a lot of weight to lose. So we see these substantial you know, improvements in terms of their weight loss outcomes, but they're also those with the most amount of weight to lose, as well as the fact that they use these for very long periods of time. They use high doses. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So Let's get into then. Of course, it sounds like one of the main benefits is just as a whole, it helps with weight loss, it helps with fat loss, makes it considerably easier. What is going to be some of the overlooked drawbacks of just this type of drug as a whole that listeners should be aware of? Yeah. So, you know, I always say this, this uh, statement, I always say that for every gimme, there's a gotcha. And I feel like a lot of what we're seeing and we're hearing in terms of information regarding these GLP-1 agonists 
only highlight the benefits and they don't bring up the potential drawbacks of these drugs. And this is because they continue to get more and more popular due to the facts that we have many celebrities out there who have been using them for what's called off-label use. So they're essentially using them for cosmetic weight loss. So we see, right. you know, celebrities who will go on names, but we see them all over and all of a sudden they have Ozempic face uh, or they, they've lost the last 10 or 15 pounds that they needed and they're utilizing it for cosmetic weight loss rather than for the treatment of diabetes or obesity. And it causes many others in the general population to want to do the same. So I have clients that are asking me about this and like, you know, they have 10 pounds to go to get to their summer body. And they're like, listen, Brandon, what do you think about, you know, utilizing, you know, semaglutide? And it's like, this is just out of left field. And so I think the first thing anyone out there that's considering this drug should know is that although they do cause significant weight loss, the losses they net, so in total, you know, our amounts to weight loss, you and I as coaches, Jeremiah, see in practice with our clients often, especially for those who are in that overweight or obese category and right. have a lot more body fat to lose to get into a healthy range. So yes, we're seeing in some of these clinical trials, 15% weight loss. However, these are in overweight and obese populations that are in excess adiposity, meaning they're, you know, it's really to the point that they have such severe obesity or such severe amount of, you know, excess body fat that they're in a place where their health is compromised as a result. Whereas a lot of us, you know, I I do work with certain clients that would be in that BMI category that's obese or in that overweight category, and they have weight to lose. However, you know, when we actually look at the literature, we have to really break it down a little bit more specifically to see how effective is this, because I don't want to discount the fact that they're the most effective weight loss drug that we have up until this point. However, I think a lot of people, just like I said with research previously, you know, when we look at hypertrophy research, a lot of people are looking just at the abstract. They're looking at like the positives. They're never looking past the abstract and really looking to the research findings. So for example, we just discussed the step one trial. That's the most popular weight loss trial that we have to this point. So in that trial, they found that they lost a little under 15% of body weight in 68 weeks, which if we actually break it down, if you do like a rate of loss calculation, that comes out to a weekly rate of loss of 0.2% per week which no one would find impressive. I'm not trying to discount the the efficacy of this, but I'm just saying like when we really think about it, you know, I, I'm going to be honest. I don't ever have my clients diet for 17 months straight, but I've been able to attain 15% weight loss through diet, exercise, and lifestyle interventions many times with clients over the years. And it's been at a rate of between 0.5 to 1% a rate of loss per week. So that same exact weight loss could realistically be achieved in 15 to 30 weeks instead of 68 weeks and without that drug. And we also know that, and this is something we've discussed many times in the past, but we know that most in our society, especially in our American society, they're great at losing weight, yet many fail to maintain weight loss, which is why I've always been such a huge proponent of t- you know, talking and discussing and really getting into the nuances about weight maintenance and about talking about strategies for maintaining weight and fat loss. And it's also another reason why you and I have done so many podcasts over the years together on topics that relate to this. So if you think about it, like we've done, I mean, maybe a dozen podcasts that relate to the fact that yes, fat loss is great and and we effectively want to help you lose fat, but we also want you to help maintain it. So we've done a two-part series on high my high energy flux approach, which is to help people get not only get lean, but sustain that leanness. We've done a podcast on how I stay lean year-round and also the principles around staying lean year-round. We've done, you know, uh pot multiple podcasts on the importance of the diet after the diet, whether that be a reverse diet or a recovery diet approach. And we also did a two-part series on the likelihood of fat regain after dieting, aka, you know, what we uh, termed, I think you you labeled it. And this is actually what the terminology in the literature is the body fat overshooting yeah. effect. And we recorded part one of that. Then we also did a part two about how to avoid that. Now, granted, we do see a significant amount of weight loss in these trials. And, and like I said, I'm not trying to discount that at all. But what a lot of people aren't looking uh, at in the research is the likelihood of weight regain after stopping the use of these GLP-1 receptor agonists. So 
oftentimes we hear like these statistics and people will say, and I've been the one and I've said it many times that often when you do not have a plan after the diet, you have a very high likelihood of recidivism, meaning that you're going to regain the weight you lost. And that's why statistically you see within one year between 50 to 70% of those who have lost weight. Uh, a year after having lost that weight, they will regain what they lost. And in two years, that percentage goes up to 85%. And in such studies, that percentage at three years post-diet goes up to 95% of those who went on a diet and lost weight will have regained what they lost. However, we don't even have interventions that look that far out because a lot of these studies have been done in 2021, 2022, or even like the step five trial was 2023. So we don't even know what's happening three years post that period of them, you know, um, utilizing the drug. However, we do have an example of the step one trial where they looked at a group, you know, uh, they essentially looked a year later. So in the step one trial, you know, they essentially compared a group receiving, you know, semaglutide with a placebo group where both groups received nutritional and lifestyle counseling, which went over diet and physical activity interventions and strategies for the 68 weeks of the study. But then what this, the um, authors did was they did a trial extension where they looked at the weight regain and cardiometabolic effects after discontinuing semaglutide use. And so in this trial extension, they took a portion of the semaglutide group, which had been on the drug for the 68 weeks, so for their 17 months, and then they followed them for another 52 weeks to see how they do without utilizing the drug. And over the next year, the group regained close to 12% of the initial weight that they had lost, which was about 70% of the total weight that they had lost. Yet, this follow-up didn't last the total duration of time on the drug to the time off as they were on the drug for 17 months. However, they were only followed up for 12 months. So essentially, we're seeing the same weight regain from this all, you know, all powerful weight loss drug as we do from regular diet interventions. And so another component of this is they also looked at the cardiometabolic improvements these individuals made during the 68 weeks of semaglutide treatment. And they found that these reverted back to baseline metrics all within that first year. So it wasn't even like it lasted the total duration that they had been on the drug to being off the drug. And this led them to conclude that one year after withdrawal of weekly, you know, semaglutide injections, participants regained two thirds of their prior weight loss with similar changes in cardiometabolic variables. And they also said that the findings suggest ongoing treatment is required to maintain improvements in both weight and health, which mean that in order to maintain the weight loss from these drugs, you may need to continue using them to keep the weight off, which is many may not be able to do as if you actually look into this and I'm not sure if you've had this conversation with clients, Jeremiah, but this drug is extremely expensive oh, yeah. for those who aren't prescribed. And it gets it. more expensive as you go on, right? It's incredible. So when we look at it, it's for, technically right now, most people, the, the, the category of individuals or candidates that are able to get this prescribed most often are for those with conditions like type 2 diabetes. Right. And generally, semaglutide is only covered for insurance for those with type 2 diabetes. So for those who are getting it for cosmetic weight loss, so you aren't obese, you aren't suffering with type 2 diabetes, you don't have you know, a physician being able to prescribe this, you're often looking at an average cost of over $1,300 per month. So if we look at some of the most effective weight loss trials using semaglutide, they were you know, taken over a 17 to 24 month period. So in order to get the similar results that we'd see, that be over a $15,000 per year uh, expense. And so over those 17 to 24 months, like if we were looking to mimic exactly the same and replicate the same results that these trials have gotten, we're looking at between a 20 or $30,000 investment, which many wouldn't be able to do in the first place, let alone to afford like a $15,000, you know, yearly ongoing expense just to maintain the weight that they had initially lost. And so first of all, it, it's out of, um, it's, out of pocket for many people. And then it's also not realistic to be able to think that anyone's going to be able to utilize that and then sustain that long-term 
in, in an effort to keep that weight loss off. So what's, you know, easy to gain is often easy to lose. Then another aspect of these drugs that very few people are speaking about. And the only one I want to give him credit for this is uh, if you're familiar with Dr. Peter Atia, he is the yeah. one, you know, physician, he's someone, you know, he's got a clinic in New York and Texas and California. He is one individual that works with countless thousands of individuals across the country. And he's, he's very well versed in these drugs and he's a proponent or he actually speaks outward of the muscle loss that he's seen. But what we see in the literature is a significant portion of the weight loss on semaglutide comes from lean body mass, which includes muscle mass loss. So for example, and that same step one trial that we've been discussing on semaglutide, they found that those in the semaglutide group lost about 39% of their weight from lean body mass. So more than a third of their weight loss came from a loss in lean body mass. And also when we actually look at like systematic reviews on the effects of GLP-1s that include semaglutide and their effects on lean body mass in humans, um, you know, one of these reviews found that a majority of the studies that have used GLP-1 drugs, the amount of lean body mass loss ranged between 20 to 50% of total weight loss, which is significant reduction in lean body mass. And we see in other lines of the literature that losing lean body mass during a diet leaves individuals more predisposed to rapid uh, weight regain, which is also something that we covered in the body fat overshooting effect. So essentially what we see is when you are to lose a substantial portion of the amount of weight that you lose from muscle mass, you have, you experience what's called hyperphagia, which is this increased drive to eat. And so it's it's almost like an insatiable drive because your body wants to regain lean body mass. This is uh, metabolically active tissue, which is you know expensive, but also is precious. And so the body is driven through appetite, uh, you know, pretty much a down regulation and appetite regulation, and then a increase in hunger to regain that weight. And so really when we're looking at Either way, whether it's diet and you don't utilize, you know, smart interventions in terms of how you diet and, you know, your resistance training and things of that sort, and you, you crash diet, we see that people are more predisposed to weight and fat regain after, but also we're seeing the same thing in these semaglutide trials. And so, you know, as a whole, I think it needs to be said that despite these drugs being extremely effective, they aren't going to be a magic long-term solution for anyone who's not willing to commit to changing their lifestyle, changing their habits and modifying their behaviors around nutrition, diet you know, exercise and movement and also focusing on the stress and, you know, management and sleep quality aspect of life. So I'm not here to say like that someone should or shouldn't take the drug as I'm a coach, I'm not a clinician. Uh, but I do believe as coaches, we should be aiming to help clients become healthier while also helping them to limit the amount of potential harm they do to themselves, which is why I wanted to cover both sides of the story around semaglutide and what the research shows regarding it, especially in terms of weight regain, as I've literally had like 10 plus clients, maybe a dozen plus clients just within the last year who have come to me and have used semaglutide prior to contacting me. And essentially what has ended up happening is when we get into a discussion, the reason that they're contacting me is because they've lost anywhere between 25 to 60 pounds. And almost every single one of them has regained all that weight back within six months to a year of discontinuing the drug. And also not only was that, you know, an effect, but they also couldn't afford to keep hanging out of pocket for it. And they realized that the drug wasn't their end-all be-all solution for sustained weight loss. And then I've also heard, you know, from the majority of these clients is that when they got off the drug, they experienced the worst hunger and drive to eat that they've ever experienced. And after hearing about this again and again from these clients, I started to think about the fact that, you know, yeah, I'm so used to dieting people naturally, to be honest with you. And I, I am myself. And I started thinking about the fact that these individuals' weight loss experience is completely different than my own or yours. And you know, that's because when we diet, when you and I have dieted without the use of GLP-1 drugs, 
you start to notice that your hunger and your drive to eat gets higher as you get leaner and leaner. So essentially you feel it building, you know, but for those individuals, the entire time they were on the drug, their appetite was suppressed and it was lower due to how powerful of an appetite suppression, you know, um, or suppressing effect that these GLP-1 drugs have. So when they got off the drug, they were now significantly lighter and leaner. However, they, they were hit with this increased drive to eat and insatiable hunger that just kind of like hit them out of nowhere. So they didn't even expect it. They didn't have awareness around what it was like to feel that way because they didn't feel it building that entire time. And so really it was almost more difficult. And I, I can't say like, you know, just in my opinion, you know, in my professional opinion, comparing what I've seen with dieters who have done it naturally and then have come out of a, a you know, a dieting phase into a post-diet phase compared to the experiences and the personal anecdotes of the clients that have told me how incredibly difficult and how frustrating it was that they went from losing all this weight and feeling invincible. They didn't have hunger. It was super easy. You know, they, they weren't constantly, you know, thinking about, you know, food on their mind and things of that sort and losing all this weight and feeling great, but knowing it was a huge expense out of pocket. And then all of a sudden, you know, in less time than it took to even lose that weight, they regained all that weight and back and more. And it was just like, it almost put this narrative around them that they didn't, you know, didn't deserve to lose this weight or they were never going to be able to keep weight off or, you know, they, they messed up or it was a poor investment. And there's so many of these, you know, we have to realize we can't separate psychology from physiology. So ultimately I'm not here to tell anyone out there whether they should or shouldn't take a drug as that's their personal choice. Like you have complete, you know, control of your own, you know, decisions, but I do believe in taking a food first approach and an all encompassing healthy lifestyle focused method to physique transformation. So just like I'm, I'm going to prioritize nutritional interventions and strategies over fat burning supplements for creating a deficit during a fat loss phase. And I'm also going to prioritize sound and progressive training programming over say like anabolic use or PD use for muscle gain. I do think that if anyone out there is considering taking one of these weight loss agents, then you make sure that your nutrition, your movement, your training, uh, your habits, your behaviors, and your lifestyle are in check as anything that's quick to gain usually is easier to lose. So it's just like, you know, I kind of look at semaglutide. I've had these conversations about this. It's almost like a, a get rich quick, uh, quick scheme where they're usually a ripoff, to be honest with you. And you have to think about the fact that whether it's a diet program, it's an online program, it's a, a weight loss drug, whatever it may be, if it promises easy and quick weight loss without a cost, it's usually a fallacy. And this is something we just have to increase awareness around. There's a, there's a ton of benefits to these drugs, but there's also drawbacks. So we have to be objective, aware, and be willing to look at both sides of the equation. An incredible summary, man. And I think you really touched on all of my points and really most of the conversations I've had with uh, clients and potential clients around this as well, where just make sure like it's not, uh, I think we're both very neutral on it, especially like in the right context. I think it can be a very helpful thing. And it's definitely been very helpful for a lot of people. But when we're just looking at it as like, hey, I'm just going to take this and this is going to fix things. There's no, if we're not addressing the habits and the lifestyle that got you there in the first place, then again, when we eventually have to get off the drug, unless you can take it for forever, we're going to go back to it. And also as something where like so many people that I talk to, like several of my Uber drivers, like they just come up with what I do and like, oh yeah, I'm on semaglutide right now. And it's like, man, I just don't eat, right? I, uh, <laughs> it's like, I literally don't eat anything at all. And so we're again in this position where, Hey, you probably are experiencing a lot of muscle loss and thus setting yourself up for a long-term that body fat overshooting effect we talked about so in depth in two uh, that two-part series right where if we lose a considerable amount of muscle it's pretty common that after that diet is over we just experience an insane drive to eat and eat and eat until we regain that tissue that we've lost which often comes back with gaining back more fat than we lost in the first place so it's again just to sum it up again just like the uh 
the lifestyle change still has to be there. I think it's, again, it can be like, look at it like a supplement, right? It can supplement the process, but it shouldn't be our main focus. Um, anything else to add there before we wrap it up? No, hundred percent. I definitely agree with that. And and I want everyone out there to realize this isn't like me passing judgment on anything. I have a hundred percent empathy. Like I, I, I recounted to you guys, uh, you know, I, I had my father die of diabetes related complications. And honestly, that has, it changed my life and seeing him suffer. I, I saw him have a heart attack in front of me as a kid. It changed the entire trajectory of my life, which is why I'm obsessive about health, fitness, training, supplementation, nutrition, everything you could think of within this industry. A lot of people often like, you know, ask me why I'm so driven to do so many podcasts or put out so much content. Or, you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to put out more and more information and really it's try to, um, essentially I always look back and I wish I knew then what I know now and I can't change the, you know, what, what happened in the past with him and how he suffered. However, I can educate others on both the potential, you know, side effects as well as the benefits of different lifestyle choices. And that's why I've, I've centered so much on a health focus, uh, our health centric approach to coaching. And actually our first podcast ever was about my principles based on the health centric coaching model that I've been utilizing for going on 11 years at this point. And so within that, this is just to increase awareness. I really like to empower people with education. And I just see a lot, a lot of one-sided views on this topic. And it's not that there's right or wrong. However, there is um, a way to delineate information in a correct way. And so a lot of times what we're hearing out in social media or we're hearing on certain podcasts that are by doctors or by people that have, you know, um, I guess you know, conflicting interests or conflicts of interest, essentially, like they get endorsed by these drug companies or they prescribe these drugs. So of course they want to promote the things that they're utilizing in their practice. And every, you know, this is a capitalistic society. There's nothing against that. However, I do want to be the objective informer of information. So yes, there's a ton of benefits, but there's also drawbacks and we have to be aware of both. And if you are someone that you have your lifestyle in check, you have, you know, you are someone like a lot of the people that Jeremiah and work with, they're like type A, they're very driven and they're motivated individuals who just, you know, sometimes life gets away from them. They're not in the best, they're not in the greatest shape that they want to be, or they know that they could be, you know, hold themselves to a higher standard and get to a better level of body composition. A lot of you, you, I would say, and I have this conversation often with clients. I have even people that are contest prep athletes and my, I don't want to say argument, but my rebuttal to them wanting to use a drug like semaglutide is if you have the full on capabilities of doing this. Why would we look for that intervention? If you were someone, by all means, if you were someone with obesity, you were someone that you had limited mobility or you couldn't exercise, you had an injury um, or you had type two diabetes, by all means, you have a condition which right. is implicated for the use of this drug. However, if you are full well and, and capable of doing this, wouldn't you feel more accomplished being able to do this on your own and not being reliant on a drug intervention? Because I will say that I do come from the bodybuilding industry and a lot of people have utilized this during the end of their prep. And we already see this body fat overshooting in terms of contest prep as it is because a lot of people you know they regain almost the entire amount of weight you know essentially and, and i hate to say this like this because but it's the truth you know bodybuilding is almost like competitive weight cycling you know they're going through drastic you know decreases into really low levels of body fat and a lot of people don't have a moderate and a sustainable as well as a healthy approach to this sport they overdo it during the preps and they you know, they, they kind of pull back the reins a little bit too much during their off seasons, eating, you know, a ton of hyper palatable foods, eat, you know, gaining all this weight and just thinking, you know, I'll, I'll set a date for a prep and that will be my motivation. I'll push through. And I just, I see a really unhealthy relationship in terms of relationship with food, their psychology, and then also how their physiology reacts to that. So if you are someone that is fully capable of achieving your goals, just with a little bit more attention to detail, dialing in some variables, maybe a little bit more on the nuances of nutrition, 
programming your trading in a more progressive, periodized manner, and then also looking at the life or the the movement aspects of your lifestyle, the stress and sleep management. And you can get to your goal. I don't think this should be the first thing you're thinking about. However, if you are someone that's still really struggling and you're nailing everything, this could be the cherry on top. But do keep in mind that there is a large predisposition towards weight regain. So we need to have these fundamental habits in place. You need to have your lifestyle. You need to have your nutrition. You need to, you know, if you've never counted macros, but you're looking to spend $1,500 on a drug, you know, every single month, you should really rethink your priorities and know that, you know, there are things we can't put the cart before the horse in anything. Cause anytime you do that, you just put yourself into a situation where you set yourself up to fail rather than setting yourself up to succeed. So really when it comes down to education podcasts, and even what I do on a daily basis with my clients, my ultimate goal every single day is to leave clients off better than they came to me, but also to set them up for success. So just like with education, with the advice that I provide them, this is all based on both my objective, you know, viewpoints on things, also a huge collection of data that I go through and I try to look at things in the most unbiased fashion possible. Believe me, it would be from a coaching perspective. Like think about this logically, Jeremiah, from us from coaching, and I do know people doing this, where they're getting rapid transformations, where they're posting, you know, this 12 week transformation of 40 pounds lost, but they're having a client utilize semaglutide. And it wasn't the client that came to them to utilize it. It was that they recommended to the client to utilize this. And so, yes, it's making their business look better, but what happens after the fact? What happens after that three-month intervention or that three-month fat loss phase where the, the client can no longer afford the drug nor your services? So now you've left them off much worse than they came to you because they don't have the fundamental habits. They don't have the accountability. They don't have the drug. And they also don't have someone looking over them and really helping guide them through the process of that post-diet period, which I'll often say, and I, I, I mean, I've often said that the diet after the diet is just as important as the diet itself. And that's really, we need to get these fundamental principles in check as well as really make sure our priorities are aligned and really set everyone up, including ourselves up for success long-term. Absolutely, man. I think you summed that up incredibly well. Let's go ahead and wrap it up here. Um, listeners, of course, any follow-up questions, feel free to hit either of us up. And if there's enough, we can turn it into another episode. But before we let you go, dude, just let everyone know anything you would like to plug and where they can find you per usual. Absolutely, guys. Always feel free to reach out to me at Brandon DeCruz underscore on Instagram or my email, which is bdecruzfitness at gmail.com. And as always, you guys can also find me on my weekly podcast called the Chasing Clarity Podcast. Jeremiah, thanks for always having me, brother. Of course, man. I'll link all that up in the show notes. And thank you all for being here.